The plan today is to finish up the chapter, finish the book, and then uh, next week, Lord willing, get into uh, 2 Corinthians, which is Paul's kind of follow-up letter after uh, they've had some time to consider what he had to say and so forth. It's actually the first, I don't know, probably five chapters of the second letter to the Corinthians is some of my favorite, honestly, in the scriptures. It deals with a lot about calling and God's encouragement in our lives and it's good stuff. Way better than this stuff. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can't say that, right? That's, that's bad. Um, so remember the, the main issue of, of Corinthians that he's writing to is, is, is man's wisdom versus God's wisdom, right? We've been saying that every week now for a lot of weeks. And the bottom line is what wisdom, what, what application of knowledge, which is what wisdom is, right? The proper, properly apply, applying knowledge that we have to our lives. So which, which wisdom are we going to apply? Are we going to apply the world's wisdom, which is constantly telling us we need to take care of ourselves, we, make, we need to make sure that we're the most um, dominant one, that we're, that we're getting the most, that we're you know, children, <laughs> right? Children exercise the world's wisdom. You take their lollipop or you try to do something that and, and they don't like and they, they pitch a fit, right? That's, that's the world's wisdom. Always take care of yourself. Always make sure you're the best and you're the, the most pampered. But God's wisdom is different. God's wisdom is ultimately that we are to love him, to know him, have interaction with him, to love him, and to respond to him with open hearts and minds to his work. And then after that, to love people and respond to them with open minds and hearts in, in lieu, or not in lieu of, but in, in harmony with uh, God's work right, and his will and so forth. So the Corinthians were not doing that. We've read that for 16 and a half chapters. They were very much like uh, our modern world and like us at different times and maybe even today. Uh, that we, <clears throat> They were making sure that they were drawing to attention. They had spiritual giftings. They were using those giftings not to bring glory to God and to show other people how great God was, but to show how great they were because they had these gifts and they could just use them as it were. They were suing each other to make sure they didn't lose financially. They... Uh, were um, had some definite some bizarre sexual activity that was going on in in the body, and they're getting um, and satisfying the desires of their their flesh, right? So they're doing all these things, and so as we kind of mentioned last week, and and Paul's habit in his letters is to kind of just start handing out a lot of applications in the end, right? And I'm not saying they're arbitrary or calling them willy-nilly or anything like that. I'm not making a commentary like that. Just that they seem to come really fast and just be like, do this, do this, do this, do this, and, and work this way and work this way and work this way. And, and so we're kind of finishing up those applications that Paul gives. Uh, you know, every, every pastor has like a shtick. You guys know that? You've been around the Christian block for a while. You know that every pastor has something that's in, or a Bible teacher in general. Uh, you know, that this is important to them and that, you know, if, if everything goes south in a teaching, they can just revert back to that, right? And just, just talk about that. If it's uh, the rapture or if it's eschatology or if it's the age of the earth or, you know, whatever, everybody's got their shtick. My shtick is this. My shtick is that God really loves you a lot. And we live in a really crummy world in general. There's got a lot of death, a lot of garbage, and just... A lot of bad stuff happens to us, and we cause a lot of bad stuff to others, right? Just by existing. I love it. He says, in many things, we offend all. Just by living, you know, we do things, we say things, we get hangry, whatever it might be. But he loves us, and even though we're, we're just radically dysfunctional and broken in so many ways, he has ministry for us. He has a part for us, every single one of us, in his Church, church being the, the, the Greek word, the ecclesia, the called out gathering of people. So every single one of us has this crazy value to God's kingdom. And, and it's, not, it's not that some people are super valuable and other people are kind of like the, the plebs or plebs, however you like to want to pronounce that, that Roman word for commoner, you know, loser, basically. Right? You, you have like... If you, if you pastor a mega church, well, then you're kind of the upper echelons of God's kingdom. And then if you, like, empty the trashes, well, then you're just, you know, you are what you are. It's not, it's not at all. It's that every single person holds this incredible value and an ability to be part of what God is doing, right? And some of that might just be practical labor, which is very important. Some of that might be just your presence around someone else that encourages them. It could be 
anything. I mean, literally, it could be a hug. It could be going to someone's house. It could be emptying the trash. Can you imagine if you had nobody to empty the trash? That'd be a disappointing church to go to, wouldn't it? After like week two, right? So all these things that we have to contribute, and, and, I, and I would say that I think everyone of us probably have, have like menial things that we can contribute, menial just being common things, and, so, and all of us have the Holy Spirit in us and have the ability to encourage each person, right? So what's, to me, what's exciting about these last verses is that Paul's really going to lay out, yes, some kind of, uh, uh, just kind of a barrage, if you will, of uh, practical applications, but there's theme here. There's theme to this barrage, and, and the theme in this barrage is the, the economy of heaven, what's valuable in God's kingdom, because it's completely different. And you guys, if you've been to church like more than once, you know that heaven's economy is different than the world's, right? That heaven's wisdom and understanding and the way we look at things, insight, you know, all the different uh, um, worldview, all the different phrases we use to kind of describe ideology of Christianity versus ideology of the world, they're completely different. And so that's what Paul's going to talk about here. And what he's going to talk about is, is to people, some of it, among the theme is kind of our calling as human beings in the church and people that we ought to pay attention to in the church and listen to, right? And so we'll start off. We're going to read a chunk and then we'll, we'll, we'll go back. <clears throat> so in chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 10, he says this, When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now. But he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. and Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition." Uh, in the churches, excuse me, verse 19, well, well, we'll read that later. We'll stop there. So he lays out certain instructions. And I just kind of let this sink in for a second. In verse 10, he says, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear. Doesn't that seem like a weird instruction that you would write to a church? Hey, I'm sending this guy to you. When he gets there, make sure you don't scare him. <laughs> Why would you ever have to write that? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write that? Why, when you were writing to a church, would you think to yourself, I better tell this church not to scare this kid. And then I'm going to tell them, don't have contempt for him. What is contempt? We've all seen like a court show before, right? Whether it was like Judge Wapner or whatever iteration of Wapner there is today, you know, or whether we watched, you know, some... What is it, like 5,000 seasons of, of uh, CSI or whatever? So we've all seen these shows, right? And inevitably, in court shows, at some point, someone is about to get held in contempt of court, right? And you go, oh, oh it's, like, it's a month in jail or whatever's going to happen. But contempt of court is when you disrespect the court, right? You disrespect the court because you speak out of turn. You insult someone in the courtroom. What it is that you disesteem, you assign no value or authority to the court, that's what contempt of court is. And so when Paul's saying, first he's saying, don't scare him, and then he's saying, don't, have, don't, don't treat him with contempt, what he's saying is, don't disrespect Timothy. Don't treat him in a way as if he doesn't have anything to contribute and he has no authority. Now, we'll talk more about authority because we're Americans and that word scares us and, and we just can't have it in our lives other than our own personal authority. But so Paul's you know, making the statement here and he's, he's telling them in a dysfunctional church, do not scare this guy. Now, who's Timothy? Timothy, from the little that we know, and again, this is a bit of inference, so be careful or feel free to throw it away. We know that Tim, the, the things that are said about Timothy. 
the, the verse that are, is in many greeting cards or is written on our walls, uh, God has not given us a spirit of timidity or of fear, right? He's given us a spirit of power. That was written to Timothy. That was, a, that, was a, that was a letter that Paul, it was part of a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy to be a person of confidence in the Lord, a person of, uh, who doesn't retract. We know that Paul notes of Timothy, he's, of Timothy, he says, I remember your often tears. So we get to, <laughs> Timothy's like, oh, Paul, really? Come on, for all eternity? So evidently, you know, Timothy was a, a, a sensitive person. He was a person that uh, probably very empathetic and and, and dealt with stress and these are things with tears. He, he often cried. This literally means Timothy often cried. He was a, he was a sensitive guy. We know that uh, he tells Timothy, don't let anybody despise your youth. Not like make sure you come out and be proud and angsty, but the idea of don't do something that people could look down on your youth and don't, don't shrink away from responsibility because you're young. We also know about Timothy that he was willing to get circumcised as an, as a, an adult in a world where they have, like, you know, pounded knives and stuff like that. He was willing to endure pain. So all these things. So he's an interesting guy. He's both bold, he's timid, he's empathetic, and he, he deals with stress, crying, these different things. He's emotional. So he writes to Corinth, and he says, don't treat this guy bad. And make sure you don't scare him. So I just want to point out that it's very possible and probable that churches can hurt people, right? I think it's happened once or twice, if I'm not mistaken. And the reason that that happens is because churches are filled with people like you and me, sinners. And sinners think bad things, and they say bad things, and they act out in bad ways. I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying we should do it. I'm just saying it's a reality. And in this case, Paul's writing back to this church, and it's a corrective letter, and he's saying, you guys are doing things that when God's servants who just want the best for you come to you, you scare them, you don't have value for them. And then he says, lastly, he says, send them away in peace. He says, when, you, when, when it's time for Timothy to leave, make sure he leaves from you in peace. He doesn't leave for you, from you depressed that he doesn't leave from you anxious, but that he leaves in confidence and in comfort, right? That's what peace gives us. And how many times have you and I, don't raise your hand, have we made sure that if someone left us, they did it without peace, right? I didn't like what happened in this scenario, and I'm going to make sure you know that on your way out. And if you leave, I'm going to just, you know, say what I want to say and do what I want to do, because that's the mantra of our society, Right? The mantra of our society is do unto others before they do unto you, right? Do unto others so they know not to do unto you. That's kind of our, how our society works. And so Paul's actually calling this church like, no, we need to do something different. We need to be those that send people away in peace, those that look at God's servants. And it doesn't mean like, oh, titled people or people behind podiums or something like that. It means God's people, people that are serving God. That's, that's the whole thing of this, right? The household of Stephanus. The fact that he was given to hospitality, and he goes, you should listen to that guy, just because he's friendly, because <laughs> he's merciful, because he's kind. There's this whole value system that Paul is putting forward here. To the Philippians, if you don't mind, let's flip over there. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul puts it this way. In Philippians chapter 2, In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul puts it this way. He says, therefore, because of what he just said in chapter 1, which we won't cover. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. So Paul gives an application, which is a pretty normal application, right? Can we just generalize it, boil it down, love people and be nice to people? Okay, so just, just, I know it says more than that, but let's boil it down to that. And what he says is, and what he bases the ability and the reasoning for acting in such a manner as this, if you've ever been encouraged by Jesus. That's interesting. He says, if Jesus has ever encouraged you in your life, then you should draw upon that 
and look at others with that and love them and treat them right. He says, then he goes on to say, if there's been uh, any comfort from his love, if God has ever comforted you with his love for you, now how would he do that? Because do we feel his love? I would suppose that some of us would make the argument for us sociopaths, we would probably just say, well, I don't know if I feel Jesus' love all the time, but I can definitely observe it. I can see his kindness to me. I can see how he's taking care of me. I can look in the scripture and say, wow, look what he's done for me. He's forgiven my sins. He's, he's, taking, he's, he's given me a place to stay. He's given me clothes. He's given me friends. He's given me you know, all these different things. These are tokens of his love, right? These are, these are gifts from God because he's, he's kind. And so he says, if God's, if you've ever felt his love, if you've ever known his love, that's a basis by which that we then move forward and say, I can love someone else. I can look at someone else and say, I want to do something that's going to be the best for this person, right? That's what he's calling Corinth to do. He goes on from there and he says, if there's any sharing, common sharing in the spirit, if you've ever had unity with another person and with God because of his spirit inside of you, that is both the motivation and a point of power, a source that we draw upon to be kind to people, to love people. He goes on to say, if, that's a, if, if, if you experience tenderness and kindness or compassion, that's another place that we draw upon from God. How many times have we been comforted? How many times have we heard a word or read a word or been given a word that just gave us supernatural comfort where we realize that even though the situation is very bleak, that God is still at hand and he's still working. He says, if you've ever had, if you've ever drawn on any of that, he says, that is the place that we minister to others from to be able to say, or as he says here, I, should, I guess I should say this. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit. So he says, draw the, upon these things to be able to move forward in, in unity and in, in, in draw upon the things we've received from God through Christ and his spirit to then be able to give those things to others. And he says there, verse 3, then he gets even more pointed do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's hard. Never do anything. Never say a word. Never make a motion. Never do an action from a selfish place. And I, the, the, the crazy thing about that is it's, it's impossible. <laughs> right? It's literally impossible. You know, it's funny, and I'm not saying it shouldn't make us feel good to do good things. I'm not saying that at all. But you could talk to any person who vehemently rejects Jesus and rejects God and rejects any kind of spirituality at all. You can go to people like that and say, well, you're, you're digging you know, wells in Africa or you're feeding the homeless. And inevitably, in a long enough conversation, they will come to the point where they will say, in general, it makes me feel good. And you go, that's interesting. So... The serving of others is actually being manifested from a place of consoling yourself. That we can even do for others just because it makes us feel good. Now, I'm not saying it shouldn't make you feel good. It should make you feel good. It should, you should have a sense of peace and satisfaction from serving Jesus. I'm just saying that when our service comes from a place instead of obedience to Christ or motivation by the Spirit or just looking singularly at another person and saying, I want to do this only because it will be a blessing to you. I don't even fit into the equation. He says that's how we're to live our lives. C.S. Lewis has a tremendous uh, definition for humility. He says that humility is not, is not uh, debasing. It's not downing ourselves. True humility is not being like, I'm a loser. I'm worthless. I'm that. You may be a loser, but you're not worthless. Christ died for you. If we've made ourselves losers, well, that's up to us. But we have absolutely an incredible intrinsic worth, right? So humility isn't making ourselves small. Humility is not considering ourselves at all. Right? So a truly humble person can hear, you're the best person ever, and go, okay, cool. And a truly humble person can hear, you're the worst person ever, and go, okay, cool. Because I don't, I'm not considering myself if I'm truly humble. 
But if I'm always considering myself, if I'm doing things out of a selfish ambition, if I'm doing it for vain glory, if I go over to the trash can and empty the trash and think to myself, are people seeing me do this? Do they see my how servanthood I am, how humble I am? Drink it in, people. This is, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing it for the wrong reason. I'm not actually, I'm contributing to God's kingdom because the trash is going to go out, but I personally am not growing in my, in my consideration to that. So the, it's, a, it's a hard thing to realize that, that what God is actually doing in our lives and in the changing of our hearts is he's bringing us to places where we're not consumed with ourselves. What I think, what I feel, what I'm this, that, or the other thing. But to be able to move forward and say, what does God have for me? And what is, you know, how can I experience him? And how can I get closer to him? And then from that, be able to bless others. There is a selfish element to Christianity. Like, I don't want to go to hell, right? I don't want to be separated from God forever. I want to have the joy of the Lord in my life. It's fine to desire those things. Self-preservation seems to be programmed at our very basis. But that self-preservation still has to acknowledge that that's because it's God's will for those things. And he's just good. And so I can invite them into my life. He's going to go on from there. He says, don't do anything from those motivations. And then after that, he says this, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he goes on basically to point out that Christ was willing to empty himself. He was God and he was man. And he is God and he's, he's, he's got a, a body, a glorified body. But he was willing to empty himself of his deity, meaning he did not rely on it. He never pointed to it as a point of validation. He never pointed to it as a, a place of power. He never pointed to He himself emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. He demanded none of his rights. Why? For you and me. Because he loves us. He wants to redeem us. So we're called to that same life where we move away from motivations based on my wants and my needs, although we have wants and needs. But we have promises for those wants and needs, right? A couple weeks ago, we looked at the, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he says he'll provide everything that we need. He says that, that, that we're more important than many sparrows. He says he knows all the hairs on our heads. He said there's many promises that God knows exactly who we are and what's going on, and he will provide for us. There's also many promises that says, congratulations, you're going to suffer. There's promises that go with suffering that says that God uses all things together for good. For those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So where Christianity, where the rubber meets the road of Christianity, and where it meets the practical uh, reality of church, is we just have to, we, we need to come back and ask ourselves some questions. I love Jesus' questions, right? Peter sinks in the water. When Peter sinks in the water right in front of him, Jesus asks him, why do you have little faith? Like, are you serious, dude? Have you seen the wind? Have you seen the waves? It's not really common for people to walk on water. Is it surprising I get a little nervous in the middle of it? Why do you have... He, he has so many people, so many people. And it is so great because he doesn't go, I can't believe you have little faith or you're so lame or you're this. He just asks, why do you have little faith? That is, to me, it's a personal opinion, the most profound question that's in the scripture. Why do I have little faith? Why do I come to places in my life, admittedly, regretfully, on a regular basis, where I have little faith? I mean, what I mean by that is, I don't believe he'll do what he'll say he'll do. Will God use all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to purpose, or will he not? Are we the exception? Is this instance the, the exception? Is this something that this is the one? The verse should have said, God will use almost everything in our lives for good. We'll never know which is which. It's everything. So we need to ask ourselves, why would I come along and say no? Not this one. This is the one he will not use for good. And it boils down to this, my feelings. I feel a certain way about a certain thing. And then from that place, I form an opinion from my feelings. And then I spout that opinion. 
And we're interesting because especially when we introvert about our feelings, we spiral. Right? Has anybody ever in this place introverted with a bunch of negative feelings and shut out you know, logic and truth and come out in a good place, in a better place? Have we ever sat down and then come on the other side and go, I'm really glad I did that? <laughs> Not usually, right? And so what Paul, and, you know, and all that's going on here, he's calling them to a lifestyle where when somebody like Timothy comes along, or, or somebody like Stephanus comes along, or some sort of instance or difficulty happens to change how they think, to slow their response and to be considerate and act in ways and think in ways and, and, and develop thought patterns that are based on truth and not how they feel. Timothy, you're a threat to us. You're from Paul. You're not going to validate everything we're doing. So you know what? We don't want you. So we're not going to listen to you. We don't care about what you have to say. And just get out of here and go back to Paul. That's what he's combating. And that's what happens in churches all the time, right? Because it happens in human hearts. And Paul's just saying, we don't want to act that way. We want to be people that are humbling ourselves, waiting on the Lord to do great things, and trusting him that he's going to come through in what he said. And when we're in a place like the Corinthians, when we're insisting on our thoughts and feelings and rejecting the truth of the Scripture, it just makes it all the worse. And Paul's saying, hey, don't go there. We reject the people around us. Verse 12, this is just a very practical thing. We know that this letter is a response back to uh, uh, the Corinthians because they had some questions as, long as, uh, uh, as well as some of the, the things that, that Chloe was concerned about, the household of Chloe. But it says there in verse 12, it says, Our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to go with you, the brothers, uh, with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go up now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Kind of funny. Doesn't have a lot to do with us. He's like, yeah, about Apollos. I told him he should probably go. He said, no, he'll come when he's ready. <laughs> so for them, it was probably very practical. Like, oh, that's where Apollos is. I think for us, we can kind of draw the same thing. Have you ever wanted somebody to do something they didn't do? One or two of us, once or twice? And how did we react when they didn't do it? Do we get mad? Do we get riled? This is a really excellent idea of how relationships in church should work. I really wanted this guy, and I urged him to go to you because I thought it's what he should do. I mean, can we... I know that might be considered inference, but if Paul says, I really urged him to go to you, I think we can, you know, kind of deduce from that that Paul thought it was a good idea for him to go, right? And so Paul, being convinced that it was a good idea for him to go and strongly encouraged him to do it, and, and Paul said, no, I don't want to go. And so Paul says, so he didn't come. <laughs> and he will when he's ready, when he, when he has time. That's really important for relationships. It's important for relationships in church. It's important for marital relationships. It's important for friendships. It's important for all of that to realize that we are nobody's master. Paul, who you could arguably say is kind of in charge of the work at this time, right? He's kind of, he, he's, he's in effect kind of a major player in how God's will is communicated right now. He's writing letters about how it works. He writes letters of recommendation. Remember, we read that last week. He says, well, when the brothers come and bring that money, I will write them letters of, rec of uh, uh, recognition, meaning that you can recognize these people as people that are from our ministry. That's what Paul's saying. So, you, you know, this, this, if you will, the head of a ministry comes and says, I think you should do this. And Apollo says, no, not right now. And so Paul doesn't make a big deal about it. He doesn't, like, insert in his letter, Apollos is kind of a punk, P.S., right? He just said, I encouraged him. Apollos said no. We have another instance, because we knew Paul knew what he was about. We have another instance where Paul and Barnabas, they go on a, they go on a uh, missionary journey, right? In the middle of the missionary journey, they take John Mark. He's kind of like their roadie, essentially, and he cuts out at some point. Some point in the journey, we don't know why. It's not told to us. We just know it was negative. He just leaves them in the middle of the journey. So uh, a few months later, Paul and Barnabas get back together, and they say, hey, let's go back and let's visit all the churches that we either started or we were part of or we contributed to. And, and Barnabas goes, that's great. Let me grab my nephew, John Mark. And Paul goes, no. He says, we are not taking John Mark. 
That guy ditched us in the middle of our last journey, and I'm not taking him again. <clears throat> and Barnabas, his name, right, the son of encouragement. That's what his, it's a nickname. He's not his real name. Barnabas is not his real name. It's his nickname. I mean, son of encouragement. It was given to him by the apostles. Barnabas is a second chances guy. Paul is a business guy, right? Paul's getting stuff done. He's in the ministry. He doesn't have time for people that punk out of him in the middle of a journey. Barnabas is, he's a family man. He's a second chances guy. And he says, no, 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 let's, let's take John Mark. And, and Paul says, no. And it says, it, it, it's funny because it actually uses, the, the, the Bible uses the, 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 the Greek word for hot. It got so heated, it got so hot that they, had to, they separated ways. And, and it says that, that Paul chose Silas and he went on the journey that he was going to go on. And it says that Barnabas took uh, John Mark and they go back to Cyprus. They, they sailed across the sea. They go to that island, the island Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea, which happens to be where Barnabas is from. Two things. Number one, Paul never writes a letter like, that punk Barnabas, and he disagreed with me. No, they just, they just parted ways. They just came to a place in their lives where they said, hey, you know what? We're not going to travel together this time around. Interestingly enough, about 20 years after that, in one of Paul's letters, he writes back and he says, hey, will you send John Mark to me? He's profitable for the ministry. So John Mark proves himself in some way. John Mark repents. John Mark shows, hey, I'm a reliable person. I'll, I'll be, and, and, and Paul receives him back. My point is this, that there will always be disagreements in church. Right? There always will be. Because we're different people with different backgrounds, different ideas, different uh, ways we were raised, different music tastes, different everything. Right? There will always be disagreements there. But we have to be those that, that act and respond in ways that even if we have to part ways, even if it's just something you're just like, man, I just can't, that's just not where I'm at in my walk, and I can't go there with you. Even if we have to part ways, we can still say, God bless you. Because I know, I know God's working in your life. I know God's doing things in your life. I just can't go along with that. But you know what? The Lord's good. And he'll either show one of us that we need to change, or we can just be different people. And we'll go do, and we'll, and we'll be involved with our ministries. So this is a very important idea. Even though it's just one little phrase, I urged him to go, and he said no. It's important. Because we don't put demands on each other. And we don't decide what other people should do. We can encourage. We can say, hey, this is a bad idea. It's also noteworthy. It's, it wasn't a sin issue. It's not like, you know, uh, Apollos is like, I don't know, coming to church puking because he's drunk. And Paul's like, well, I mean, if you're going to... No, it's, this is, it's just a ministry. It's just, a, it's just a, an opinion. It's just a what do I think you should do issue. And, and they were willing. It's, it's so great. He's like, yep, I was really on fire for this idea. Apollos is not doing that idea, so he's not coming till later. He goes on from there, verse 13, and he kind of shoots out five applications here. Be on your guard. Guard literally means be diligent. So he's, first he says that we ought to be diligent. So diligence is, a, is essentially when we continue give attention and labor to something, right? So if you're diligently seeking something, if you're diligently looking for your keys, you know, you're pulling up the sofa, you're, you're asking the kids, you're blaming everybody else, you know, that's, you're diligently looking for your keys. You know, that's, that's what you're doing. That's what happens in my house from me. I'm the worst at that. Who moved my keys? Because obviously no one moved my keys, but... I have a bad memory, so I could, you know, I'm like, there's no way I did that. Why would I put my keys there? Um, it's embarrassing, but it's true. Like, it's, so that's diligently looking for something. Then he says, stand firm in the faith. Now, there's a lot of application to this, because standing firm in the faith doesn't mean, like, if somebody tries to come in here and say this doctrine, we're sticking it to them. That might be part of it. But the idea of standing firm in the faith is the idea that you're, you're standing firm, you're sticking to the faith. You're staying where the faith is. You're not moving away from the faith. You're not doubting the faith. What's the faith? The faith is that God is good. The faith is that he saved us, that he called us, that he has a plan for us, that he's working, right? We, we could turn to a million verses for each one of those tenets. But standing firm in the, in the faith isn't just rejecting bad doctrine. It's making sure that every moment of my life, I'm continuing to appropriate what God says is true. I've said this before. I 
And the Bible endorses that there is a time to work through things. Right? The evening of tears gives birth to the morning of joy. Over and over again, we see examples. Jesus is in the garden, and it says he was troubled. Literally Greek, he was, he was depressed when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's waiting to be crucified. And it was even Jesus who said, if there's any way, I mean, just, just think about this. Jesus, the Lord Jesus said, if we can have a different plan, Father, I want that plan. He said, if there's any way that this cup can pass for me, can we please do that? I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to be separated from you. It's the man Jesus expressing his earthly will to what is about to happen. And he never sinned, and he is perfect. There are times where we can absolutely express to God, this is not the cup I wanted. I'm troubled by this. I don't know how to deal with this. But we can do that, and we ought to do that in a way where we say, nevertheless, not your will or my will be done, but your will be done. We may not feel that way, but we still confess that because we're standing firm in the faith. It is just fine to wrestle with what is the will of God. It's just fine to wrestle with this broken world. It's just fine to wrestle with what people do to us and all that, that is, is perfectly acceptable. Where it gets off is where we turn inward and we lose your will be done and we instead just entertain, I don't like this. And that's where we spiral. And a big part of Christianity is not just being zapped by the Holy Spirit and being changed in a moment. That's great if it happens. But a big part of Christianity is every moment taking my thoughts captive. Every moment saying, that's inappropriate. That thought is sin. It's wrong. Every moment being real about where I'm exercising my will and my opinions from. Is it from my wisdom and this world's wisdom? Or is it from God's wisdom? So we are culpable. We're, we're responsible for how we respond to in, the, in those times. We're responsible for how we deal with what comes our way. We can deal with things and we can address things in a very godly way and still have doubt about it. Does that make sense? It's what Jesus did. It's what we can do. And so uh, back here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, he says, we're to stand firm in our faith. We're to be courageous. Uh, courageous. Literally, and some of your English translations probably have this, act like men. It's probably the most toxic thing you can say today. It doesn't mean like, you know, scratch your crotch and spit in the woods or something. What it means is, the idea of act like men is have maturity in your strength. Be mature. Be courageous. Because see, a mature person denies impulse, right? That's what a mature person does. When a child gets something taken away from them, even if it's something bad, if you see your kid running around with a Tide Pod in their hand and they shove it in their mouth and you run over and go and clench their jaw and then pull the Tide Pod out and they start screaming and flailing and want to hit you, they're acting out of impulse, right? You just delivered them from an ER visit at best. But their response to that is, you've wronged me and now I will pitch a perpetual fit about it until I just kind of burn out of my fit, Right? So you would look at it and you say, that's childish. So when he says, be a man, he's not talking about weird ideas about masculinity. He's saying, be a mature individual. Have courage, have strength to be able to take the things that occur in your life in a mature way. That when we have to deal with things that we don't like, that we deal with it with composure. That doesn't mean false faces or pretending like everything's okay, but we deal with it by standing in our faith. We deal with it the same way because that's what maturity does, right? When a mature person gets wronged, they stop and they think, and that is also a big part of Christianity. Our, our society moves at a million miles a minute, doesn't it? It's just rolling and rolling, and everybody's dealing and talking right now, and as soon as I have a feeling, I vocalize it, and as soon as this, then I vocalize it, and I can do it to the universe instantly, all these things. That's how our society is going. A big part of Christianity is rolling that back in maturity and evaluating what just happened. 
What did this person say to me? What did this person do to me? What is this, you know, this, this car accident I was involved in, something I was outside of my control? What, what happened? What does my faith say about that? Not what I say about that. Not what my feelings say about that. Not what my heart says about that. What does my faith say about that? Okay, now what does my heart say about that? How does that line up where my faith is? It's being contemplative. In Ephesians 5, Paul puts it this way. He says, walk circumspectly. Literally, walk looking in every direction. Walk with an understanding of all that's going around you. And so as Christians, that's what we're called to do. We're called not to react and you know, just unleash. We're called to consider. Half the Psalms, like in the middle of them, see us, pause and consider that. We're called not to respond out of a place of feelings and emotions. We have feelings and emotions, some of us. But we're not called to respond out of that place, right? We're called to respond out of our faith. We, can, we express our feelings. We express them to the Lord, just like Jesus did, just like David did. All these prophets of old expressed their feelings. But it was based on, or when it was appropriate, it was based on, this is what I'm feeling, but this is what I know to be true. And that's where we find healing. We don't find healing in just continually expressing feelings. Has anybody just expressed themselves to the point where they feel like, I don't ever want to express myself again? I'm so just full from expressing what I think. No. We get filled up from expressing what we think and then receiving what God says is true. And so that's part of being, standing our faith, it's part of being courageous, it's part of being adults, acting like men. Be strong. And he says, do everything in love. Again, that's just, it's another impossible application. But this is very cool, I think. This is how a good church works. This is how good relationships work. Again, going back to this idea that I'm being considerate. I'm evaluating where my own heart is. So I get in an argument with someone or someone does something to me, takes the last you know, chicken strip from the line, you know, whatever it might be, right in front of me. And I want to react to that. But I don't react. I keep my mouth closed. And I don't let it spiral in my mind. And develop, oh, it's that chicken strip stealing. That person knew. And that, I had my eye on that chicken strip the whole time. They should have saw me staring at it and drooling. You know, whatever it might be. Because we can come up with some weird logic of why we're entitled to things that we're actually not, right? That we take a moment, we evaluate, we consider, where is this coming from? Is this from Jesus? And then when I respond to someone, to ask myself with every word, with everything that I'm doing, every action, is this an action or word that is going to propagate the best way I know how love for Christ? Is this going to generate, what are the chances that this generates a response that's going to be positive in the economy of the kingdom of God? That every interaction, that that's how we think. That we begin to develop habitual thought patterns. That we begin to, to develop an ear for the Holy Spirit. Where we, and we're changed and we're, we're moving from a place of saying, I, I, just, I love this person. That's, that's where God wants us to go. And that's what all these applications have to do with. He goes on there from in chapter 15. He says, you know the household of Stephanus. They were the first converts in Achaia, and they, were dev- they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. You know, Paul could have said a lot of things. He could have said, tally the, bigger, the biggest donor and submit yourselves to them. He could have said, take the most eloquent speaker, the Apollos of Corinth, and submit yourself to him. There's a lot of things that our society puts huge value, our church society puts huge value on. But the person that Paul chooses to say that you should look at that person and listen to what they say is some guy whose claim to fame is he was the first, his household was the first people to get saved in Achaia, which is where the, Corinth was the, the capital of Achaia. He says, they were the first people to get saved. More than that, he says, they were devoted to God's kingdom, to his work. Later on, we know that they were very hospitable people is what it came down to. They were constantly having people over and, and helping them. And that's the person he says, he says, people like that, 
people that are serving God's kingdom, people that are lowering themselves and humbling themselves and not exalting themselves, he says those are the people that you should look at and listen to. That's what he's saying. And you see the economy of heaven here. You know, you, you, you can have all sorts of fancy stuff, but what really matters in our lives are we people that are devoting ourselves to God's work? Are we people that are devoting ourselves to what God has for us? Now, again, even Jesus tried to go on vacation. So this, we're not making like some weird application here that if you're not serving Jesus 24-7, if you're not either reading the Bible, talking about the Bible, or hugging somebody with the Bible, then you're, you know, he's not saying that. What we're saying is that our life, our mindset, is based on what do you want from me, God? What do you have for me? What, what is it that I'm going to do today? He might say, you should do your yard work today. He may say nothing. Has that ever happened to you? Where you ask God, what should I do in a situation? And it's like, nothing. And you're like languishing. You're like, I might even fast for lunch, God. I'm serious about this. I mean, clearly I don't do that, but you might have done that, right? You just go, I'm going to skip a meal on this one. And we can get real, and there's nothing. There's no response. And then you go, well, maybe I'm not spiritual, or maybe I sinned, or maybe this, or maybe that. Or maybe God's just saying, you can do what you want. <laughs> and if I wanted you to do something, I would tell you. He even says in the Psalms, I made the mouth. I can speak. So there's... There's certain times and certain ways that, that we're called to serve, but God will tell you what he exactly wants you to do, and we can kind of just be available for whatever else comes our way. So we're not making a weird standard about service. We're just saying that we're to be devoted to it. Lord, what do you have for me to do today? And if he's quiet, then just do what you were going to do. And if something comes up, someone knocks on your door or a phone call, or something, you go, maybe this is what I can do. What's going on? How are you doing? You know, who knows what it might be? Maybe it's just to spend some solitude with him. Maybe it's just to go to work so that your family has money so they can eat. That seems like a pretty positive thing to do for God's kingdom, like, you know, making sure people eat in your house. So there can be a lot of those. I mean, we're not making some specific thing. But they were devoted to it. And he says, when you see people that are devoted to God's work, he says, those are the people that you should listen to. Because they're, they're in tune with and they're listening and they care about what God is doing. And when we're seeking for advice or we're seeking for comfort or we're seeking these things, we don't want to turn. There's a million fountains to drink from, right? There's a million spigots out there to, to, to get water from. And, and, and some of it will be satisfying for a time, but will leave us even more thirsty, and so what we're called to do is to, to see what he wants and to see what he has for us. He's going to go on from there, and he says, uh, <clears throat> uh, verse 17, I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus, I love that name, by the way. Somebody should name their kid that. Not me, but somebody should. <laughs> Checking in the kids' ministry, this is Fortunatus. Don't say that wrong. Anyway. <laughs> And Achaicus, you're like, I wonder where that guy's from. <laughs> I don't, uh, it says, and they arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. And it's not just men. He says the same thing about, um, uh, you know, that lady. At the end of Romans 16, she gets like a whole write-up. No. The P starts with Priscilla, yeah, yeah. So it's not just like, oh, those men, it's, it's people. But what should, who are the people that should be recognized? And it doesn't mean like they get their own parking space or a plaque over the kitchen or something. It means that, they, that, that you recognize them, literally, that you, re, that you look at them and you go, oh, I recognize you. And they're people that are refreshing. We love refreshing people, don't we? We, we don't maybe treat them the way we should all the time. But refreshing people are such a blessing. You know what's cool about refreshing people? They don't have to, like, have a lot. They don't have to have, like, super, like, specialized, awesome skills. They, there's, like, the, the, you don't need a lot of things to be refreshing. You just have to not be a jerk. Right? I mean, don't you like to be around people that are not rude? 
People that like say things like, how are you? And then stay in one place to hear what you say. Right? He says we should recognize people that refresh us. And we should, we should consider them. We should go back to them. And we should aspire to be those people. We want to be refreshing people. The most unrefreshing people in the world, who are they? You say it. I won't say it. You, who, are the, who are the most unrefreshing people in the world? Jerks, yes, all of that. I feel like it's family feud. Complainers. Complainers are the worst people to be around in the world, and yet we all are those people. If you get invited over to somebody's house and you're like eating the meal and they just complain the whole time, do you go away out of there like, well, that was great? <laughs> Definitely going back there. No, you're like, you're like, you look at your spouse the way out like, wow, that was, you know, <laughs> block. <laughs> you, know, it's like, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Don't, we don't want to be complainers. You know what? Medicare is going to do what Medicare does. Right? The Oval Office is going to do what the Oval Office is going to do. Big Pharma is going to do what Big Pharma is going to do. All right? Whether we land it on the moon or not, it's going to do what it's going to do. It doesn't matter. Essential oils are going to do what they're going to do. Right? It just, it just, we don't want to be around complainers. We all pay taxes. We all know they suck. Right? There's a million things in this world that we all can come together and agree like we don't like that. But you know who's great to be around? People that just, they say crazy things like, dude, God is good. Look what I read the other day. Check out what he did in my life. You know what's weird is that sometimes, even with our most close friends, we can feel weird by starting a spiritual conversation. Have you ever felt that before? You can literally be in the church at lunch after a sermon and be like, I don't know if I really want to bring up the Bible right now. We're talking about politics. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But if you did, the crazy thing is that if you did, in my experience, unless you were just rude with it, people will turn to that and go, oh, that's right. And I read this the other day. Or I heard this on the radio. Or Max Lucado told me. Or, you know, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, we're refreshers. And we're doing this incredible thing. There's times to mourn. There's times to check our emotions about tr through truth. And there's times to, to move on and be refreshers. So wherever we're at and all that, it's the same. There's still that same flow. It's all based on Jesus and who he is. And I'm always acknowledging that, right? That's, that's the truth of it. And that's all Paul is expressing here. He's saying, be those people. Be those people to the different individuals. He's going to go on and, and we'll just kind of finish it up because we're out of time here. He says there in verse 19, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, so these, are just, oh, these are just folks to us. They may just be names, but these are people that they knew, people that went there, lived there, helped them. The churches of the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets in their house. All the brothers and sisters there send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Just, just because people ask about this now and again, why don't we do a holy kiss? Because it's cultural. And there's people that aren't going to be comfortable with that. Me being the first one. <laughs> you know, I made it all through France for five days, never getting a bizu. Because I was like, hi, I'm American. <laughs> Keep your lips on your side of the, you know, I'm good. You know, it's fine. If you go to France, you go to a Bible study, you literally... Bizu, every single person. Because in France, if you don't like in America, America's great, all right? Because when we come into a social gathering, like, what do you do? Hey! All right? And everybody's happy. If you do that in France, it's basically like flipping them off. You go to every individual, like, how are you doing? It takes like 45 minutes to arrive and leave from any event. It's, it's, it's terrible. America is great. It's a cultural thing. We shake hands, right? It's, it's just, it's culture. If, if we started trying to kiss everybody that came through the door, the visitors would be like, whoa, what do we got going on here, right? Or they'd be like, hey, this is my place. And you're like, 
So we don't do that. <clears throat> so he's going to go on there and he says, uh, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. And this was special because most of these letters, um, I think except for Galatians, they're, they're dictated letters. And Paul had eye problems. In fact, he says about Galatia, he says, when I was there, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Um, and he, he says, that's how much you, you cared for me and you loved me when I was there. And then he also ends up, he says, see, see how big of letters I write with my own hand. So Paul evidently um, couldn't see well after a certain period in his ministry. And so he wrote really big letters, which I just find hilarious for some reason. Not like mocking him, but it's like, that's awesome. He, he wasn't a perfect person. He didn't do everything right. You know, he didn't have the best clothes. He didn't have the best handwriting. He was just serving Jesus. So he says, hey, I'm, I'm writing this greeting with my own. And then he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. And he makes a pronouncement that would be very unpopular for a lot of us, I think. But he's, just, he's, he's pronouncing that truth. And he says, look, if anybody's going to reject Jesus, then let them reject Jesus. Let them be accursed. Then they'll go to hell. And he's obviously not dismissing people because he doesn't love them. He literally spent his life and is ultimately martyred because he loved people. But he also just says, hey, there's going to be people that reject the Lord. They're not going to love him. They're not going to have a part with him. And that's their business. And just let that be for what it is. We can love them and we can pray for them, but everyone gets their own opportunity to say, I don't want to be with God. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And verse 24, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. You know, just in closing, I think that this is, when you read, I could be wrong, but when you read something like this, it almost, for me anyway, and maybe you, I don't know, it develops like a nostalgia. It's like a dream. It's like, like C.S. Lewis says, it's, it's like a sense of a flower you've never seen or like news from a country you've never been to. There's something intrinsic in it when you, when you listen and you read and you consider these things and you can say, that's what I've always wanted. Community. Contentment. Friends. Supernatural intervention. Power in a life. And there's something inside of us that just goes, I don't know if that could ever happen. I don't know if it could ever be. And that's Satan. Because we, this is what we're invited to. You know, it's kind of like when you tell your kids, or if you told your kids this, or and I've read it before, it's like, be the, you know, if, if you want to be married, be the person that somebody would want to, be, to marry, right? So if you want a certain kind of spouse, if you want a spouse that loves Jesus and, and is hardworking and does this, then you probably should be that person, right? So if we want, a, if we want a community in, in our little place right here, we can't be that community unless we are that community, Right? We can't just wait for someone else to forgive us. We have to forgive them. We can't just wait for someone to be nice to us. We have to be nice to them. We can't wait for someone to invite us over. We have to invite them. It's up to us to build a community. Every one of us. It falls on our shoulders. And he says there in Ephesians chapter 5, he says that the, 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 the church, or 4, excuse me, 4.16, and we read this before, that the church builds itself up in love. Our church will only be as good for as much as we build it. Otherwise, we just become like an institution, a place where people can go and get some tasty coffee and maybe hang out for a bit or something. And I don't think we want to be that. I think when we read these things, we say, that's what I want. But it's going to come through us being the ones that make it. Does that make sense? By the power of the Holy Spirit and by his leading also. So if that's you, if you want that, cry out to the Lord for it. Ask him, where, where do I go from here? What should, I, what should I be involved in? How can I perpetuate this in my family, in my church, in my whatever? And let him speak to you. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to you and says, hey, don't say that. Hey, don't think that. Hey, don't do that. We should listen to him. It's amazing how much good fruit comes out of our lives when we're attached to the one who gives good fruit, right? But there's great things for every one of us. Every one of us. And, and God has plans, and he, uh, David says, that, you know, he makes the comment that when we were in the womb, he knew our days. We're told that in, in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're his poema, his workmanship, created for good works in Christ, that he foreordained for us. Just over and over and over again, we're told that this, this dream can be a reality. 
but it's up to each one of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and these promises. Thank you for our brother Paul and the way you used him and, and for uh, the Corinthian people, even in their dysfunction, Lord, that you love them and you uh, sent a resolve, sent a fix, correction. Lord, we want to learn from it and we want to walk with you. We want to have an awesome church. We want to see people get saved. We want to see baptisms again. Lord, we pray that you would do a great work on our peninsula, a great work around our homes, that we would be open to whatever it is you have for us and that we would be those that, um, I don't know, just draw near to you no matter what. Lord, we thank you for your promises for us. We pray we'd stand firm in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.